Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. By the providence of God, I'm preaching sequentially through the Gospel of John, and here we are in Easter, and here we are at the resurrection miracle of Lazarus. In early 2006, a San Francisco paralegal named Mike Patterson started a website called MyDeathSpace.com. It's an internet site that tracks and details the deaths of MySpace members. Over time, MyDeathSpace.com has become a sort of virtual graveyard, mostly for young people who died prematurely. Though some use the site to mourn, heal, and discuss matters of the afterlife, critics say most people go to the site out of morbid curiosity. Bob Thompson, professor of pop psychology at Syracuse University, writes the following. This site does kind of let you look into the heart of darkness. We see how we are all dancing so close to the edge, how quickly mortality can come in and take us all. I have to uh, admit that when I read this, I did go to mydeathspace.com. And it was kind of a strange experience as, as you look at your screen at these pictures of Young people, teens, 20s and 30s, with a little tag next to them saying when they died and how they died. I got a kind of a deep sinking feeling. Here are these young faces of, you know, smiling and laughing, holding their dog, surrounded by family. And I realized that these people were decomposing in a grave. And my heart really got heavy. You ever feel that sometimes when you think of death? Anybody? When you think of maybe someone close to you who's died? I, I went to the funeral or the wake, I guess, of, of David Gray, and they were giving out these refrigerator magnets of, of his face and his birth date and death date. And I put it on the refrigerator, and I was getting some ice cream out or something in the freezer and and it's right there by the handle and I just stared into that face. And it was like getting that sinking feeling all over again. I think that's exactly the feeling that Mary and Martha were going through in our text today. They had that sinking feeling as they watched their dear brother Slipping, slipping, getting closer to that edge of death. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 1. God's word says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, 
It is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go up back up to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. There's no way around it. Our passage today is all about death. And we're going to look at death in this, the way this text presents it. And what we just read about is the reality of death. The reality of death. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were close, close friends of Jesus. This Bethany was kind of the home base of Jesus when he was around the Jerusalem and Judea area, much the same as Capernaum was when he was up in the Galilean area. So Jesus knew and loved this family. He knew and loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He spent a lot of time there. Think about it. He ate with them. He participated in regular small talk with them. I mean, we don't get a whole lot of that in Scripture. But I'm sure when you spend copious hours with Jesus, he's going to talk about the weather. <laughs> he's going to talk about he needs new shoes or his, or his sandals need repairing or, or his clothes are wearing out and he needs to find a new cloak. He talked small talk with these people. He woke up with them. He woke up with them and they saw him when his hair wasn't perfectly coiffed like in all the paintings, right? <laughs> hey, they saw this. This is the kind of relationship that deep, intimate, normal relationship that you fall into when you spend time with people, isn't it? In other words, this was Jesus' second home, his second family. And verse 5 tells us very explicitly that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And his second brother was critically ill. And Mary knew this, so she sent for Jesus. She, she had seen and probably heard many, many accounts from the disciples as they stayed at that home about Jesus' healings, his miracles. They had heard about these things. They had probably seen and witnessed many of them. So Mary sends for Jesus because she has an inkling where her brother is going. Where he's slipping towards. The path that you 
the path that I are all on. Death. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like anything about it. In his commentary, Gary Burge says, we sanitize our language around death. We say, so-and-so passed away last week. We don't even like to say died. He goes on to say, we don't like to see death. And he goes on to detail out how, how we have professionalized it. When a person dies, they're kind of packaged up and you don't see them again. He goes on to say, we don't even like to acknowledge death. And he talks about the beautiful jewelry box-like coffins that we buy for people. We do almost everything and anything not to get too close to death. Because it kind of reminds us how close we are to that edge, doesn't it? We fear death. Mary and Martha know how close to the edge Lazarus is. And in verse 8, the disciples realize that Jesus going back to Judea near Jerusalem, to Bethany, put his life in danger, and they feared for Jesus. And a little later, Thomas even exposes his own fear in verse 16, right? Verse 16 Thomas says, let us go, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, there's two ways to take that. You can take that as incredible spiritual courage. We're going with you. We're behind you. But I think if you take three steps back and look at how the disciples acted just a couple days from now, I don't know if that's spiritual courage. In fact, the message translates it this way. Thomas says, come along, we might as well die with him. I think that he didn't want to go. He feared for his life. Fear of death is universal. We all want to stave off the coming of death, don't we? We want to go back and backpedal from the edge as far as possible. Rex Hubbard, a televangelist, some of you may know this name. He was a televangelist in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He would often tell a story of of a mother who contracted cancer and her little six-year-old daughter overheard one day the doctor telling the mother that she wouldn't survive the autumn. A short while later, the mother glanced out her window and saw a confusing sight. Her little daughter was picking up the leaves that were falling off the tree in the September wind and scotch-taping them back onto the branches. It's kind of what we do, don't we? We hear stories like that and we think, think oh, how sweet, but how, how naive. We can't start, stop the march of death. And yet, how similar are we to that little girl? I mean, think about this for a second. Let me ask you an honest, honest question. Honest Why do you exercise? Why do you eat healthily? Why do we color our hair? Why is the plastic surgery industry a billion-dollar industry? 
I know I'm painting with a really wide brush here, but isn't a little part of each of those really about backpedaling from the edge, stop the aging process, maybe I can get a little further from death than I am now. Don't we scotch tape leaves back on the trees? The reality of death. We not only fear the edge we call death, we also react to it. And that's the second part of our passage, starting in verse 17. We react to death. Verse 17 says, On his arrival, Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again on the day of resurrection, on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but still was at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus arrived in Bethany four days after Lazarus had died. And the family at this point was at the height of mourning. You see, for three days, the Jews thought traditionally that the soul of a person who had died kind of stayed around the body. They'd had enough experience with death, close experience with death, to know that sometimes people do look like they're dead and come back to life. But after three days, that person was dead. There was no hope. In other words, he arrived on the day of no hope. This actually explains why he, in the previous passage we just read, why he stayed where he was two days. Jesus knew what he was doing. 
He wanted to arrive on the day of no hope. He arrived intentionally on that fourth day only to be greeted by mourning. I'd like us to pause here and notice Jesus' reaction to death. Remember, he knows he's God. I want you to keep that in mind. He knows the power he has. He knows what he's going to do. He's told us, hasn't he, already? And yet, when he comes into the village, he doesn't act smugly and condescendingly. He doesn't come in stoic detachment. He doesn't come acting dismissively. Why are you crying? I'm here. Did you notice how he, he reacted? I want us to notice the two ways he reacted. Look with me at verses 32 through 35. It says that when Mary reached him and she fell at his feet and proclaimed, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. When he saw her weeping and he saw the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. First he comes and he enters into their mourning. That's the first thing I want us to notice. Jesus enters into the mourning process with them. It says he was deeply moved and troubled and he wept. I want you to know that James Boyce spent three whole sermons on these verses. Charles Spurgeon spent two whole sermons on those two words Jesus wept. I'm going to give this to you in one minute. (laughs) Many have written that Jesus being deeply moved and troubled in Greek means he was angry. That he was angry, that there was an anger that welled up in him. And that's a possibility. It's not that that can't be a possibility in Greek. Jesus is angry at sin and death. He came into the world to conquer sin and death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Sin entered the world and caused death. And as Chuck Ives preached on the Monday-Thursday service, Jesus is the co-creator of the world. And being co-creator of everything, Jesus did not create us to die. Do you realize that? Our bodies that we think are so delicate and, you know, we're always finding something wrong with them. The, the, The medical community is always finding a new thing that's wrong with our bodies. These bodies were originally created to last forever. And so, you know, Jesus coming and being confronted with death, sure. He could be angry. This isn't how I created it. He could be confronted with Lazarus' death and be deeply moved and troubled and be angry at the fact of death. That's fine exegesis of this text, but I'd like you to consider another one. That same Greek word 
that is translated deeply moved, can mean something like he was so overcome with emotion that he lost his breath. Have you ever, has that ever happened to you? Where you've been so overcome by something that you, your breath gets caught up? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, was, I remember a couple Sundays ago, I was talking about the church in Sunday school. Just the glory, the beauty of a church working the way God wants it to work. And, and my breath kind of caught up. I was overcome by the emotion of the beauty of the church. When Jesus is confronted with Mary and confronted with the death of his friend, he's caught up in the emotion and he, he's, his breath is caught up. Jesus is overcome and he weeps with her. The shortest verse, it's, it's as if, I mean, I know the verses were put in much later, but it's as if God wanted us to see that especially. This verse gives us a very helpful insight into the Savior that we worship today. He comes alongside us in our time of sorrow. When my parents, my, par- my parents divorced when I was five, and I went to live with my mother, and my father lived in Pittsburgh, but I used to go and visit him in the summers. And he had a swimming pool, and I'd spend all my time in the swimming pool. And I remember one summer, I don't know, I was at like nine or ten or eleven, around Jack's age, I guess, and I got swimmer's ear. And I got a really bad case of swimmer's ear, so bad that, that my ear was bleeding. And the pain was excruciating. And I remember laying on his couch there and him coming into the room and, just, and not knowing what to do. And, and finally he came into the room and he said, Blake, what, what can I do? And I remember ex- this explicitly. And it was an intuitive reaction. I said, Dad, just hold me. And he got down on the couch and he held me. Sometimes we just want someone there. Not that they're going to give us the solution to our problem. Not that they're going to solve it. But that they're there. They're holding us. They're there with us. That's our God. That's what Jesus does. That's what is being seen here. Isaiah 53.3 foretells this Savior by describing him as a man of sorrows, familiar with pain. And listen to this. Hebrews 2 describes Jesus like this. Jesus had to be made like us in every way. I mean, when, when something like that is said in the Bible, you have to just stop reading your Bible and say, why? Jesus had to be made like us in every way. Why? In order that we might become, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, he knows what you're going through. And he wants to be there with you through it. Not necessarily solving it at this time, but through the valley with you. He doesn't go through it stoically or unemotionally or dismissively. He weeps with you. And doesn't that comfort you sometimes? Doesn't it? 
He gathers you up in his arms. He holds you tight. And he tells you everything's going to be okay. But, and here's the awesome truth. Those aren't just platitudes. We say those things. Everything's going to be okay. Finnegan, Jack, Avonlea, everything's going to be okay. But we don't know if that's true. Jesus saying that. He knows it's true. Because he's going to do something about it. He is going to make everything all right because death is a reality and he enters into our sorrow and reacts to death, but he doesn't stop there. He's also the remedy for death. Look with me at the final verses. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he said this. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I bet my father, those many years ago, wished that he could have not only held me, but also taken away my pain. I bet he wished that. But while he was holding me, he was wishing that. The beauty of Jesus is he does that. He does that. Jesus is the remedy to Mary Mary and Martha's mourning over the death of their brother. He just doesn't weep with them over the death. He just doesn't tell Martha, like in verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. He just, he just doesn't say those things. He does something about it. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's the same with us. Guys, Jesus just doesn't weep with us. He does that. But he does more. He just doesn't tell us here in the Bible that, that he's the resurrection. He just doesn't tell us that. He does something about it. He shows them. That's, the res- that's what the resurrection is all about. That's why we're gathered here today. That's the focus of today. To realize and remember that Jesus did something about our greatest fear. He just didn't say it's going to be okay. He did something. See, first there's Christmas. That's when he became the perfect sacrifice. He was born. God entered into our existence. He became human. And he lived a perfect life. A life that you can't live, a life that I can't live. 
a sinless life, and he became the perfect sacrifice. And then there's, there's Good Friday that we just celebrated two days ago. This is when he was the perfect sacrifice. You see, he allowed himself to be proclaimed guilty so that we could be proclaimed innocent. He absorbed our sin on the cross and he says, take my perfect record in return. Free. You don't have to work for it. And today we celebrate the resurrection. Jesus dead three days, rising from the grave, coming back from the dead, defeating our biggest enemy, defeating our greatest fear, death. You know, death is still a reality, isn't it? Someday, maybe the older people in the audience will feel the weight of this more than the younger people in the audience, but someday your body is going to give out. Someday you will die. Your body will die. But the resurrection and the guarantee that Martha gave, that Jesus gave Martha is, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, the English poet George Herbert actually understood this. And he wrote this. He said, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. Isn't that beautiful? That's the power of the resurrection and the life of the believer. It gives us a hope, a future to look forward to. Tim Keller tells when his wife was growing up every summer, her family spent two weeks in a small compound of cottages on the shores of Lake Erie. He writes, now the cottages are all gone. In fact, that part of the beach is gone too. Whenever she visits that childhood vacation spot, She weeps because she knows the beach is irretrievable. It's gone. That sense of irretrievability is like death. The older we all get, the more we begin to realize the certain losses are irretrievable. They're gone. And it sucks the joy out. But here's where Christ's resurrection offers something unique. Even religions that promise some kind of spiritual future and future bliss only offer consolation from what you've lost. But the resurrection of Christ even promises restoration. That's the difference. That's the hope. You don't just get your body back, you get the body back that you've always wanted. You don't just get your life back, you get the life back that you always wanted. Jesus Christ is walking proof that you miss nothing, he writes. It's all coming in the future. It's going to be unimaginably wonderful, he says. And as Christians, our hope for the future is based in the historical fact of the resurrection. You see, death used to be an executioner. 
but the gospel has made him a gardener. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you, in some way, change our hearts through the preaching of it. In Jesus' name, amen.